This is Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Michael Duras is the president of Orphan Outreach. For 40 years and counting, Michael's been involved in both domestic and international adoption as well as in orphan care. Prior to his work with orphans and adoption, he worked for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Lufkin Independent School District, Dallas County Juvenile Probation Department, and then Buckner International. How long were you with Buckner? 22 years. 22 years. Um, you and I met uh, in 1984-ish? Four-ish, yeah. In 1984. Um, I was a, a newly minted graduate from our alma mater, Dallas Seminary, and you were an elder at a local church, and um, I joined the staff of Grand Prairie Bible Church. Yeah, I was actually chairman of the pulpit committee. I forgot you were chairman. Oh, That's yeah. right. And you and you asked me nonetheless. Boy, I did. <laughs> it's one. Of, it's one of my claims to fame. Well, it depends on what circle you tell that story. <laughs> uh, so we became friends, and we've been through some personal journeys with our families and uh, our life stories there with your your family and mine as well. Um, how many years ago did you start orphan outreach? Uh, we started in 2007, so we're we're seven years old. It's it, I thought it was like four. Yeah. It's, Time flies when you're having quickly. fun. It goes quickly. You and Anita have been married 40 years. You have three children. You have one grandchild? We have one grandchild. And you have a really giant, is that a grand dog? What is that? Thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a giant grand dog. Giant. A Swiss mountain dog, yeah. That's 100 pounds of muscle. An amazing beast of an animal. I can't believe you let the animal live with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk primarily about orphans, but I want to back up a little bit because your story is interesting, the way you, from, from juvenile detention to so forth and so on. So how do you get from there to Buckner, and how do you get to working with orphanages and adoption in those days uh, before we talk about where we are now? Well, I, I really started, uh, my undergraduate was in criminal justice. And so I, uh, when I finished, when I graduated, I actually became, came to Christ when I was in, at the university. And so I was a, a junior in college and just grabbed the gospel. And mm. I didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I just could not get enough to learn everything I could learn about the Bible. Where were you in undergrad? At Sam Houston State University. Okay. And you were up in Nacogdoches, I yeah, believe. At, at yeah, Stephen, Stephen F. Austin, F. Austin State Austin. University. Other, I wasn't going to brag, but other you know. <laughs> university, right? And so um, I wanted to get into Dallas Theological Seminary and wasn't able to do it because I was such a new Christian, they wouldn't accept me. And at that time, it was really hard to get into DTS. And so I studied under a pastor for three years, learning Greek and Hebrew and read Greek every morning at McDonald's at 6 a.m. in the morning. And during seminary, I had to make a living because we actually uh, found out we were pregnant uh, about two months before I was leaving for seminary. And that wasn't our original plan. So uh, <laughs> Rarely uh, is, isn't it? It rarely <laughs> is, right. And so uh, so my specialty was working with kids. That's what my experience was. So I worked for the Federal Bureau of Prisons at a halfway house, and then I worked for the Dallas County Juvenile Detention Center. And actually, was uh, became man- a manager there at the center, and uh, and it was at that time when I was finishing seminary that Buckner became aware of me, and they wanted me to come and and set up a juvenile probation program for them. 
it was about the same time that we had our fourth daughter and when we were at Grand Prairie and uh, I'll never forget um, I had accepted a position at Buckner in June. I was supposed to start July 15th and Janine was born on July 4th and uh, she had a, a very uh, difficult genetic disorder called trisomy 18 Edwards syndrome and uh, so when she was born um, I was uh, you know we were very shocked because we had no mm-hmm. idea what was coming and I was in the middle of the hall in the middle of the night not knowing if Anita was alive or dead or if the baby was alive or dead and uh, I gave you a call in the middle of the night and um, and you uh, graciously immediately came over and mm-hmm walked us through uh that time and um and i'll never forget i was uh really struggling with you know whether i should go or not i got a call from the chief probation officer of dallas county and uh she wanted me to come in and Nita was still in the hospital and so i went over there to talk to her and she said you know we don't want you to leave i'm going to offer you position over institutions if you'll stay which was probably twice as much money as I was going to mm-hmm. get when I went to Buckner and plus I was worried about insurance because we didn't know what was going to be all going on with Janine and so I remember going back to the hospital and um, sitting next to Anita and I said Anita I just got this offer and I'm debating whether you know I should take it and um, I'll never forget Anita looked up at me just didn't even blink and said well what's changed and I said um, I said well you know we've got a possibly a terminal child and you know we things are uncertain now and and this is a much bigger job and and uh she turned to me again and said what's changed mm-hmm. and i said well, what do you mean she said we prayed about it and we had a peace about this that god wanted you to go to buckner and what's changed and so we prayed right there and and we really got a peace beyond all understanding that this, mm-hmm. i needed to mm-hmm. take that step and I look back at that now, and my path would have been much different if I had taken that other position. And and the blessings that I've experienced, uh, both at Buckner and in Orphan Outreach, and the impact that the Lord's been allowed me to be part of His mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. in kids, I would have never had if I hadn't taken that step of faith. And uh, so. isn't it interesting? And this is a digression, but how many times? And I could tell stories too about Cindy, where those 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 biggest decisions in our lives and our wives are just like. Like, Anita, what's changed? Mm-hmm. Or, or why not? Or what are you thinking, dope? They're <laughs> <laughs> good about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I can go back to four or five defining times in our married life mm-hmm. and metrics of decisions that were huge decisions. It was something just as simple as that. Yeah. Cindy saying, well, I think this is a good thing. I've already told you. Yeah. Our, our wives are, there's a guy, there was a way why God designed marriage. And we uh, need help. We need help. We need a lot of help. But Janine died six weeks after mm-hmm. she was born, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a long six. So, weeks. and you walked through us with mm-hmm. that, and Anita and I are eternally grateful. We'll never be able to thank you enough for that. We, we, and, we all uh, stumbled through that. Nobody knew what to do. Exactly. It's just, it's just the no, daily. No walk. parent knows what to do. You just do the next thing. Yeah. And so, the first four weeks I worked at Buckner, I spent lunch and uh evenings, evenings at the hospital mm-hmm. with janine and then uh, one morning we got a phone call saying you better get down here now and we were able to get down before she passed away and 
she died in her arms and um you know and went to be with the lord and um you know the the thing that really that experience really prepared me for ministry from that point point forward because uh but before we go to there as Mm -hmm. i recall some at least one if not more individuals came to christ at janine's funeral yes Uh uh-huh yes crazy Mm -hmm. She had an amazing impact on a lot of people, mm-hmm. and that whole experience, you know, was just in, in a strange way very joyful, even mm-hmm. though it was so tragic. Mm-hmm. And how um, old would Janine be today? You know, I um, and this is a interesting event, but uh, we we hired a um, well. I actually led this lady, a young lady, on a, her first mission trip internationally uh, when she was in high school. Uh, Catherine Chang and um, just an amazing young talent and dedicated to the Lord and she's our missions director now and we hired her and she would she actually was born a couple weeks before Janine wow. and uh, so she would uh, actually she's 29 and she would have been Janine would have been 29 wow. uh, this year and so it's hard to imagine isn't it so this stirs something in you. You're now at Buckner. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the the thing that really defined, I think, uh, really, there's so many lessons I learned, but one in particular that relates to orphan care is that I remember um, we were preparing for the funeral and someone had made these booties for Janine. And uh, Anita wanted uh, me to go to the funeral home and put it on her feet. And Janine, with her genetic disorder, she had certain abnormality she couldn't blink um she had web fingers and web toes uh her esophagus instead of attaching to her stomach actually attached to her lung and she had other abnormalities and so uh, i remember the first time the surgeon was telling me the list that night Mm. i asked him well how do we fix them and he looked at me like you're not quite getting this and he was right i wasn't i wasn't comprehending so I went to the funeral home and I uh, I put the booties on Janine's feet and I looked at her feet and I saw those web feet and I looked at her hands I saw her web hands and I looked at her eyes and remember she couldn't blink and those are the things that made her special mm-hmm. made her unique in my eyes and so instead of looking at them as abnormalities I looked at them as that that they were Janine, the daughter that mm. we loved. And that's what made her unique. And so we had one picture that we got with uh, our kids, our three other children, and uh, in, at the ICU. And we have that, we only had one picture with all of us together with Janine. And that sat on my desk from that day forward. It's mm. on my desk right now. And it reminds me uh, every day that the kids that we work with in these orphanages they they themselves think they're throwaways Mm -hmm. and they have challenges but god made them uniquely Mm -hmm. and he loves them uniquely and we are the visible demonstration of that love orphan ministry orphan outreaches orphan helping uh adoption international adoption is it is it a, a vogue thing for christians we'll go dig a well in sudan we'll go you know help folks with AIDS, all good things, all mm-hmm. good things, Michael. But is this just another passing trend for Christians to feel, to ease our guilt with our materialism and consumerism and 
Mm-hmm. I hope not. Um, I think that, um, you know, uh, I'm a founding member of the Christian Alliance of Orphans. I'm on the, on the board. And um, it's been an unbelievable uh, honor to be able to be serve in that capacity. And, you know, the message is that the, the one message is that God's heart beats for the orphan. Uh, when he judged Israel in the Old Testament, the 40-plus times that orphans are mentioned in the Old Testament, a bunch of those times is him judging Israel because they didn't care for him. And he saw that as a barometer of their faith because if they didn't care of the least of these, it showed that they were not right with the heart of God. Mm-hmm. He calls himself the father of the fatherless. Mm-hmm. And he ties that to the New Testament and the definition of religion that you just read and says that pure and undefiled religion is this, ministering widows, orphans, and their distress. And so God's heart beats for these kids. He considers himself the father of the fatherless. If we're the church and we need to, and we we want to do what God wants us to do, just like he expected God Israel to represent him, our heart needs to beat with their heart, with his heart, beat for the orphan. And so Every church, I think, this is, and again, this is what I've done for 40 years, so I'm passionate about it, but I believe this is God's heart, that he wants every church to have an intentional ministry to orphans. And I think many times we look, uh, churches look at orphan work as mission light. And I don't think God looks at it that way. I think God looks at it as he wants his church to reach out to these kids and, and meet their needs. In antiquity and in the first century, the orphan and the widow were the A to Z, the extreme examples of the helpless, the ones who could be most taken advantage of, abused, uh, maligned, forgotten. Um, In the church today, Michael, as a pastor, everybody comes into me and tells me the same thing you did about their thing, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, um, AIDS or um, single moms or, you know, sexual addictions Mm -hmm. or sex trafficking or help me out i'm a pastor of a church let's say listening to you and me a mid-sized church 200 400 people i've got fifty thousand things that people want me to do it's it's god's plan for my (laughs) life to do this you need to run a wana you need to be in the choir you need to help the youth you need to do this you want me to do orphan care and guatemala come on michael i think that um yeah, you know, we both went to Dallas Theological Seminary. How many courses do we have on orphan care and adoption? Zero. And I've asked that question of lots of seminary graduates. I haven't had one tell me that they had any course on adoption, foster care, and orphan care. But it's mentioned throughout the Bible. Every pastor, whether he wants to or not, in his congregation is going to have families that adopt families that are doing foster care, and a church that wants to do orphan care. Mm -hmm. And I think as a pastor, you know, it's a challenging job. I still say being a pastor is the hardest job in the world. Would would you say that one more time? Being a pastor is the hardest (laughs) job in the world. It is. There's no question about it. It's interesting. Let's put it that way. It's an interesting (laughs) job. Yeah. But, you know, this is the thing I think. It's so, there is no ambiguity about God's heart for the orphan. And right. if we're being faithful as pastors and leaders, we need to be, because I think we'll be held accountable by the Lord for what we do in that space. And I don't disagree, but yeah. we've got we've got abortion issues. We've got 
you know, marriage issues, civil marriage issues, the government breathing down our back for all kinds of things. And and I guess I'm just I'm asking the question, you know, not not with an agenda in mind, but saying, wow, help me out. I can't do all these things, Michael. And at some point, I've got to say. I'm invested in making disciples. I'm invested in X, Y, or Z. Now, what we've done at Fellowship is very unusual. It is a unique church because there's an extraordinary uh, number of adopted children as well as one of our staff members is paid. About 25% of his time is to work in orphan Mm -hmm. care. And I'm not saying every church should should do that either. Mm -hmm. But how do you start? You know, uh, I think as Christians, we can walk chew gum at the same time. And there's, there's a lot of things that I think that are presented to the church. And I think the church, first of all, needs to prioritize what they do. My feeling is they need an intentional ministry. And I, I would hazard a guess that in every church, there's a group of church attenders that are passionate about this issue. And so pastors need to let them go and let them work and encourage them and be, and let them be deliberate and intentional. The number one mistake I think that churches make when they get into orphan care and adoption is they don't do their homework. They don't sit down and really think of what is our strategy? How do we want to make an impact? You can't do everything. So you really need to pray for God's leading as, as to what you need to connect to and then do it well. Uh, it's not that every church has to do everything, but I think every church right. can do something. So, to so make the, bo- it. the body's diverse. Um, at Orphan Outreach, you have you've moved from international adoption emphasis and some of these things where you're focusing in on an orphanage in a local area, and and tell us what that looks like. Well, we actually just don't focus on an orphanage. Really, the you know there's a lot of different philosophies out there on how you impact kids in these countries and also in our own country. And and our and my my feeling is you need a full continuum of care, which involves you know orphanage is really residential is the last alternative. You don't you know residential care is not the first alternative. Unfortunately, a lot of the countries you work in, there's been a lot of orphanages built and they're over dependent on residential. But prevention, family preservation, trying to keep families together. If a kid has to be removed from the home, find a relative that will care for them and support those families. Uh, Prevention, you know, education in slum areas uh, where you're working with these families and preventing orphan care. Um, And then foster care is an alternative. And then adoption is providing a forever family for the kids that it's appropriate for. And in some contexts, residential is something that is very important, but it's the last alternative. And I think a lot of Christians have this kind of viewpoint, well, you talk about orphans, you talk about orphanages. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. There's lots of ways to plug in. And and it's not that orphanages are bad. There's a kind of, in CAFO, I will tell you, there's this big debate about, well, orphanages are all bad now, and foster care is the thing, and adoption is the thing. And I will tell you, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I've had kids in residential care and try to transition them to foster care, and there's many kids that can't take the intimacy of a family. They do much better in a group setting. Mm. And I've seen orphanages that are are high quality and getting really good results with kids, and I've seen foster care programs that are a disaster. Uh, It depends on the personnel, how you manage it, and things of that nature. So... And let me just interject there, because you and I have had many conversations. Um, you mentioned prayer for a local church. Investigating these ministries is critical, mm-hmm. because you you've seen a lot of um, let's just call them scams. I right. mean, a lot of scams 
because you find uh, well-intentioned American Western believers with money in their pocket, and they'll go to countries and they'll, and it's really uh, it's a charade. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think churches need to see, you know, really figure out what they do well. And a lot of times, over churches try to do everything. And I will tell you, a church that you and I both know will go nameless. I talked to the they they were involved with the starting an orphanage and running it and everything, and they were doing everything, and it wasn't going well. And I remember the mission pastor coming to me asking for help, and he said, you know, I kind of figured out churches don't need to run orphanages. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's yeah, right. That's a good maybe, lesson. <laughs> maybe a bit of a good idea to figure it out before, before you jumped hand, into yeah, the Before water, the philosophy you know? was written. And so, you know, I think churches have a role, and, and really churches can have a major role, and they need to play a major role in it, but there needs to be people that know what they're doing and because this is not it's not raising your own kids these kids have very special and unique problems but the church is called to this and people can make a real impact and i'll, I'll give you a, a quick example um you know we i had a i had a uh one time i was in russia and it was during the time of the apartment complexes were all bombed and there were hundreds of people were killed it was a terrorist act by chetnians and so I went down there, gave humanitarian aid. I actually watched them digging the bodies out of these mm. apartment complexes. I mean, it was horrible scene. And after we got done with that, it, it disrupted the schedule because everything was, you couldn't meet, you couldn't do anything. And so I actually joined a group that wasn't, that I knew the president of this organization. And he said, hey, why don't you just tag along with us? And I said, well, I got a few days open. Sure. So I got to this orphanage and these kids, all I did was play with kids for like three days. It was great because usually I'm meeting with orphanage directors and doing planning. And and so I got this nice little girl, Natasha, and just a, we just hit it off. And, you know, I just remember she was like a gymnast. She, you know, she was standing on her head. She was telling me, showing me all the stuff she could do. And, and so I made a point of going back as much as I could for like about, about a year. I would go back. And so I saw her maybe three or four times. But we really had a connection. But then I, I drifted away. I wasn't able to go back to that region again, and so I lost contact. We'll go forward 10 years. I'm in that region all of a sudden. I hadn't been there in a long time, and I'm with a translator. And I said, hey, do you know this girl, Natasha Zimbaeva? And, and uh, she said, oh, yeah, I do. I said, do you know where she lives? She says, uh, well, she lives in this flat. I, yeah, I can take you up there. And I was like, let's do it. So we're driving there, and I'm, like, nervous because I'm, like, I'm going to knock on the door. He says, who is this old man? I don't even know who he is. Oh, I saw him four <laughs> times, you know. So, But I was so anxious to see her. It's been over 10 years since I've seen her. And so we climb up these steps, and you've been in Russia. Yeah, I mean, you know, very scary going up those steps in those flats in Russia. Knock on the door. There's Natasha. You know, she just runs up, wraps her arms around me. We hug, tears coming down both of our eyes. And she's like 21 years old now and wow. tall, just a beautiful girl. And so she starts showing me around the apartment. And we go into her room, and she's got a little table there. And next to the table, next to the bed, is a picture of me and her when she was 10 years old. Our relationship made an impact mm. on her life. She kept that picture. It, it provided hope mm. for her. Mm. And so we've been connected ever since. And, um, you know, I, you know, people say, well, what kind of difference can I make? And, you know, in the, in the, in the ministry context now, we're, we're talking about ROI. 
return on investment and outcome analysis and all that stuff. And I just wonder, you know, and I've done all of it. I mean, I've developed (laughs) all the systems and I've done this part of my job. But the, the bottom line is, how do you measure hope? How do you imagine hope in a kid's life? And the reality is if you have hope, it doesn't matter what you have, you're at a loss. Robin Williams killed himself. He had everything, fame, career, money. He lost hope. These kids, you can provide education. You can provide, you know, all these things that they need. But if they don't have hope, hope of Jesus Christ, the hope, only the hope that he can give, all of it's for naught. And that's where the church, I think, has, has specializes in, mm. in giving hope. And you do that by going, and you connect to these kids. Michael Durris, president of Orphan Outreach. You can find more out about Michael and Orphan Outreach on the website. Thanks for being on Incontent. <laughs>